Welcome to 30 Minutes on 91.3 KXCI Tucson. Today on 30 Minutes, a special broadcast from the 2014 Tucson Festival of Books. The topic is Pictures and Words. We join award-winning authors Duncan Tonatu and Javier Garza as they draw from their Latino heritage. Local artist Mel Melo Dominguez moderates this panel. This is part one of a two-part series. This panel was hosted by Pima County Public Library's Nuestras Raices Tent at the 2014 Tucson Festival of Books. Nuestras Raices' mission is celebrating Mexican-American authors, arts, and culture. And now I'd like to introduce you to the moderator of this presentation, the local artist responsible for the Nuestras Raices panels you see decorating behind us, Mel Dominguez. Thank you, everyone, and welcome to the 6th Annual Tucson Festival of Books. Uh, my name is Mel Dominguez, and I'd like to thank our sponsors, the Pima County Library, for sponsoring this tent. And now I'd like to talk a little bit about our authors. Um, first, Duncan Tonetu. Uh Duncan is an award-winning author-illustrator. Most recently, his book, Pancho Rabbit and the Coyote, A Migrant's Tale, is a winner of a 2014 Tomas Rivera Mexican-American Children's Book Award. Uh, Duncan was born in Mexico City and grew up in uh, San Miguel de Allende. Uh, he graduated from Parsons New School for Design and uh, Eugene Lang, Lang College in New York City in 2008. His work is inspired by ancient Mexican art, particularly that of the Mixtec Codex. His aim is to create images that honor the past but that address contemporary issues that affect people of Mexican origin on both sides of the border. Our next author is Javier Garza, born and raised in the Rio Grande Valley, author of Lucha Libre Aficionado. Javier Garza is a prolific author, artist, and storyteller whose work focuses primarily on his experiences growing up in the small border town of the Rio Grande City. Garza has exhibited his art and performed his stories in venues throughout Texas, Arizona, and the state of Washington. Garza lives in San Antonio, Texas with his wife Irma and their young son Vincent. Welcome to the Tucson Festival of Books. Um, I'd like to open with some questions. Um, since you are both artists as well as writers, could you share your process with us? Like, do you create your art or do you write stories first? Um, sure. Uh, well, hi everyone. It's it's uh, great to be here. Thank you for for being here with us. Um, so um, I think it varies. One thing that I feel um, very fortunate I make picture books, and picture books are a great medium where I can combine both writing and illustration. And usually, picture books are written by one person and illustrated by a different person. Um, but I feel very privileged in that I I do both because then I can kind of negotiate. You know, I can work on the text and then work on the illustration, but then something in the illustrations will make me change something in the text so I can kind of balance the act. Um, usually when I make a, a book, the, uh, my editor will want the manuscript first and then, and then the sketches, but I think I try and do a little bit of both at the same time. That's great. How about you, Javier? Uh, I mean, it's the same process. I mean, the story comes first for when it comes to the publisher. I mean, they want to see the story. 
but a lot of like a lot of the books that I write, uh, I I write books about themes that I'm already working on in my art. Like I did a whole series on lucha libre. Uh, there were 30 by 40 portraits of mass luchadores. And uh, I mean, I grew up with it as a kid. I love lucha libre, so I wanted to make paintings about it. And then that's when I started wanting to take it a step further and turn it into a book, which is what I did with Lucha Libre, The Man in the Silver Mask. And, uh, and then once the, I got the manuscript picked up by a publisher, that's when I started doing the illustrations. And, and it's really, and it, like, like Duncan said, it's, uh, you know, we're lucky that we get to do both, write the story and do the illustrations, because uh, a lot of times, uh, unless they're on a panel together, uh, the author and the illustrator don't even meet. Uh, you know, it's like a lot of times they don't. And they do that also for a reason. That way one's vision doesn't get in the way of the other, I guess. But it's still kind of strange to be that two people that work on a project a lot of times don't even meet. Oh, my gosh. That sounds like a wild process to be away from the visualist. And that's very awesome. I'm, thank you for answering that because I've read some of the books and... It's pretty exciting to know that that's how, it, how it's done. Um, I also wanted to ask a specific question to Duncan. Um, since we're in, town, in a town so close to the border, I can't help but ask you about uh, Pancho Rabbit and the Coyote. Can you please tell uh, us about that? Sure. Uh, so this is the book, Pancho Rabbit and the Coyote. I'm not sure if you guys are uh, familiar with it. And it's a, uh, it's a fable. And so when I first wrote it, it was going to be a little bit like uh, Little Red Riding Hood. But instead of a, of a wolf, it was going to be a coyote. And it was going to be set in the, in the desert. Uh, but then I remembered that coyote has two meanings. It's also slang for a person that smuggles people between the U.S. and Mexico border. And that's something that I'm very interested in and, uh, and very passionate about. So the story is a story for children. Um, but it has another layer of meaning going on. It's a story about a rabbit, Pancho, who tries to go look for his papa, who went north to find work and has not come back. And so along the way, he meets a coyote. And the coyote helps him overcome different obstacles. Uh, but every time he does so, he, uh, he asks him for some of the food that he's taking for his papa. So they ride on top of the train. They cross a river, they use a tunnel to go under this wall, <laughs> they walk through the desert, and so each time the coyote helps him, he asks Pancho for some of the food until there's no food left, and the coyote uh, decides that he's still hungry and he's going to eat Pancho. And uh, so this is a story that I've read to young kids, to four-year-olds, five-year-olds, and um, and they enjoy it, they get kind of the suspense and they want to know what's going to happen next. Uh, but it's also a story about people and about adults and it's sort of trying to comment on the, on the difficult journey that uh, immigrants go through when they enter the U.S. Without, um, without documents. And I try to make the book, I know it's a very controversial topic and I have you know, my own thoughts and vision about it, but I try to make a book that where it sort of tells the story and lets people make a judgment or, or decisions for themselves. It's not saying that, oh, we should have an open border or there should be a giant fence with drones on it. 
but it's sort of trying to talk more about the, the journey that people go through, uh, which is a, a humanitarian crisis of sorts, and, um, and the separation that exists among families, because I think that's uh, something that doesn't often get talked about when, when this issue is discussed in the, in the media or whatnot. It's a wonderful book. Thank you so much. I, I'm, I love that. Um, Javier, there's another love of mine, and I, and I encountered that in your book, and that's Lucha Libre, The Man in the Silver Mask. I love all your illustrations and the story. Can you please tell the audience about the book and your love for the Lucha Libre? Well, you know, as a kid, I, uh, I grew up loving Lucha Libre. My, uh, my aunt was married to a man from Monterrey, uh, and he was, well, I, when I tell, when I talk to kids, I tell them he was friends, but what he really was was a drinking buddy <laughs> of uh, one of the guys that ran the wrestling shows at Monterrey. And so as a kid, I got to go with my cousins, and we'd go to go backstage, and we met all the luchadores, mil mascaras, and what have you. And so I grew, I developed this love of lucha libre. Then when I got older, I began to see Lucha Libre uh, indifferently. To me, Lucha Libre, in a lot of ways, it's a poor man's theater, El Teatro de los Pobres. You know, you, you have antagonists, you have protagonists. They're cast in leading and supporting roles. They work from the oldest script in the world, good versus evil. Evil is winning, 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 and then somehow in the end, good manages to triumph. They wear the outlandish costumes, and while they wear the mask, they cease to be men like Rodolfo Guzman Huerta or Aaron Rodriguez. They become the living embodiment of an Aztec legend, a cultural stereotype. Uh, they become the, what the character that they are uh, personifying is. And then the beauty of it all is that after it's over, they get to go to the dressing room. They take off the mask and they blend in with everybody else so that the person that you see buying a gallon of milk at the local grocery store, they could, he could be a mass luchador and, and you wouldn't even know it. And then to a kid, to a child, when you see Lucha Libre through the eyes of a child, I mean, these guys, they wear the masks, the capes, the tights, the boots. They're like living superheroes in the flesh. And so I, when I wrote Lucha Libre, I wanted to tell the story of Lucha Libre, but tell it through the eyes of a kid. So in the book, there's a, a, a boy named Carlitos. He's going to see Lucha Libre with his father. And, and I try to go through what first time a kid goes to see Lucha Libre. They see all these kids walking around, and they're wearing Lucha Libre masks. And of course, you know, his father asks him, do you want a mask? And what little kid is going to say no to a Lucha Libre mask? Me too. And he says, yes, I want one, but which one? I mean, some look like wild animals. Some look like funny fish. Some have great big horns with scary looking teeth, you know. And finally, he picks one. And it's a silver mask. And in the book, it, it also plays tribute to El Santo. He was, uh, in Lucha Libre, he was the one that kind of put it on the map. You know, every, everything has its prometido, its promised one, that person that comes along and changes everything. Well, he did that. He made it into, you know, where it trans, uh, trans, you know, went beyond just Lucha Libre and went into movies, went into pop culture. And in the story, uh, you know, the rudos come out. The rudos are the bad guys of Lucha Libre. They cheat to win. They'll poke you in the eyes when the referee is not looking. And, uh, and then the technicals, which are the good guys. And also in the story, it's hinted that 
possibly the man in the silver mask is the little boy's uncle. But he's not sure because you never really truly know who a masked luchador really is. So that was what I wanted to do with that book and the illustrations for Lucha Libre. Capture that whole essence of when you're a kid. No, that's so awesome. I have a, a true confession to make. I went to a Lucha Libre event. It was a documentary. And I saw that the men were posing for us in their mask, you know, like with their muscles. And they had their mask on and the characters. And, and then afterwards, we were all walking outside. And I'm like, hey, there he is. And he didn't have his mask on. He was so mad at me. So hey, You're never supposed to expose a luchador. Believe me, I stay away. I, I'm, I'm very scared. <laughs> But I, I really enjoyed the names you've given uh, the the characters too, El Cucuy, and you know, it, it very. And uh, how do you how do you say the caveman in Spanish? Yeah, uh, El oh, El El Cavernicola. What I did with that is I took the names of luchadores that were like famous in the old days. Uh, El Cavernario Galindo became El Caver, the evil caveman. El Gallo Enmascarado, you know, you know there was a, one called El Gallo Tapado. Kukui was an espanto, so I kind of modeled it. El Vampiro was a homage to Murcielago Velázquez. Just different, actual, historical, the rest, the first generation, you would call it. That was super awesome. I mean, I'm, I mean I'm way grown up, and I, I missed uh, these series of, of collection of books, and I would have loved to have read them as a, as a youth. And I, but I really enjoy them now as an adult because they take me back to those times. We'll continue with pictures and words from the 2014 Festival of Books on 30 Minutes, 91.3 KXCI Tucson. Local artist Mel Melo Dominguez moderates panelists Duncan Tonatu and Javier Garza. Um, but I'd also like to ask, I know that you both were uh, inspired by the areas that you grew up. But how does where you live now inspire you? Uh, Duncan, would you like to? Uh, sure. Well, I mean, for me, it was sort of a, for me, sort of the illustration, my illustrations, uh, like you mentioned, are inspired by pre-Columbian art. Uh, but it, that, it took sort of a while for me to come up with that and to do that. Um, you know, when I was a kid in Mexico, the first thing that I liked was, was Japanese animation, and I would make my own characters with big eyes. And then I liked comic books. I had a huge collection of Spider-Man and the X-Men, and I would make my own little comic books. Uh, then I was into like political cartoons that I saw at the newspaper. I would cut them out and paste them in my room. And then I would make uh, cartoons of my teachers and classmates and get everyone pissed off. Um, then I would, in, in high school, uh, for high school, I came to, uh, to the United States, and I went to, to a very arts-oriented high school. And so there I painted, and I looked up to people like Egon Schiele and Vincent van Gogh and just different uh, expressionist painters. And, um, and it wasn't until I was in college, and I'd sort of been away from Mexico for many years, that I began to miss and appreciate some of the things that I had around me. Uh, when I was younger, like the food and the music, and um, and so I became more curious about trying to find more about the history and and and, and art, and um, and so when I was in college, I made um, I was in college in New York City, and in New York there's a lot of uh, Mexican immigrants, and many of them come from um, from the south of Mexico, and they're uh, indigenous Mixtecos, and they speak their traditional. Mixtec uh, language um, over there, and I was just fascinated when I encountered that because here were here were people 
thousands and thousands of uh, miles away from home in a giant city. And, uh, and so I wanted to make a project about that. So I made a, a small kind of graphic novel about a, about a friend of mine, a guy I had met named Sergio, and about kind of his journey to end up there in, uh, in New York. And so I went to the library. One of the first things I did was go to the library and look up mixed deck artwork. And I came across all these wonderful um, mixed deck codecs that were done hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And, uh, and I had seen stuff like that when I was a kid, um, but I never really paid attention to it. You know, I saw it at, in textbooks or maybe a school visit somewhere or maybe at the crafts market. Sometimes people will do codex-like paintings and stuff like that, but it, it never really attracted me. And it was not until I was sort of away from home for a long time that I kind of began to, to appreciate all those things. That's really awesome. Javier? Uh, well, you know, growing up, I grew up in a small town called Rio Grande City. Uh, the Mexican border was like 20 minutes from my house. And so we would go back and forth a lot, uh, you know, not, not like to, the way it is today, but back then we used to like, uh, you know, on Fridays we would get together with friends, go over, eat, come back. Uh, so I grew up, you know, with the border very, being there. It was just, uh, I had family that lived on the other side of the border, and you just got in your car and you went to go visit, or they came over. And, uh, you know, I grew up loving comic books. Uh, uh, my st the style of art, some people have said that it looks a lot like images out of a comic book. Uh, I grew up loving uh, co comic books in the U.S. and also Las Revistas in Mexico. They would have the little Santo comic books, and they would also have the uh, Policiaco and all these cuentos de horror, horror stories. They were like little comic books in black and white also. And uh, so when I started to, uh, to draw, uh, that, is, that was where, where my first influence came from, comic books and Mexican revista, Revista de Mexico. And... Uh, so, uh, and then as I got older, you know, it, it, I think you go through a, every, every person goes through a period where you kind of like, you don't, you don't appreciate your culture as much as you should, but then when you get older, you start to like long for it, and when it came time to like do my art and write, uh, the first things I started to do were focus on things that I experienced growing up, cucuis. Uh, uh, for people that are, familiar, are not familiar with the word cucuy is Spanish for the boogeyman. And I tell people, you know, a lot of times in, in the Mexican-American culture, we don't get the wonderful bedtime story before we go to sleep. We get the story of a woman that drowns her children in the river. <laughs> and then comes back as a ghost and steals other children. Or they tell you the story of an alien from outer space that drains the blood of goats. <laughs> or they tell you all these scary stories, and then they tell you, okay, mija, mijo, turn off the lights and go to sleep. <laughs> you know, but uh, I mean, all by, all by uh, as an artist and as a writer, I mean, I draw from that, from that culture. One of my books, uh, Charro Closet de Tejas Kid, dealt with the concept of a Mexican Santa Claus. When I was a little boy, my dad took me to a grocery store to take my picture with Santa Claus, and when I got there, I noticed that Santa Claus didn't look right. You know, he had the red and white suit, but he was wearing cowboy boots with silver spurs. He had a big charro hat and a sarape with a Mexican eagle on its back. And I asked my dad, who's that? And he said, that's Pancho. I said, who's that? That's Santa Claus's Mexican cousin. 
And so, you know, and then years later, I mean, also as a kid, I heard the song by Lalo Guerrero called Pancho Claus. And, uh, and I drew from that and uh, trying to come up with a bedtime story for my little boy. That's where, where that came from. And it all goes, I tell people, everything we experience, everything we meet is connected. You know, uh, you know and, and it all comes around. And when people say, well, I don't know what to write about. Write about what you've experienced. Write about, you know, what, what, to, what we ourselves sometimes take for granted. Other people are fascinated by it, you know. Is, is that what, what inspired you both to create these books for children? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think, I wouldn't say my books are autobiographical per se, but they're definitely about things that I observe and that are around me and that affect the community that I'm a, I'm a part of. So, for example, the first book I, I made is a children's book I wrote. It's called Dear Primo, A Letter to My Cousin. And it's about two cousins, one that lives in an urban center in the U.S. and one that lives in a rural community in Mexico. And sort of like the inspiration for that is that when I, uh, in New York, for a while, I lived in a neighborhood called Sunset Park, where, where there's a large Mexican enclave. And when I first moved there, what, um, what stood out the most, impressed me the most, were the children. Because they looked just like the kids that I had grown up with in San Miguel. But it was, you know, it was like snowing, and there were big buildings around. They had like big jackets and snow boots and things like that. So the environment and the way they dressed and talked was very different. But it was sort of like the same child in a way. And, um, and so I decided to make a story about these two cousins whose life is very, their environments are very different, but they care about the same kind of stuff. Because I think children and people in general, we care about the same kinds of things. We care about family. We care about having fun, spending time with our friends, food, traditions. Um, so I wouldn't say that it's necessarily a story about me and my cousin, but it's definitely a story about things I observe and things that, that are around me. Or for example, with the Bancho Rabbit book, my father's American. He, um, he, he was like a hippie in the 60s and went down to Mexico with his buddies and never came back. He's been down in Mexico 44 years. But, um, but I'm a U.S. citizen uh, because of that, and I have family in, uh, in both countries, so I can enter and leave the U.S. and Mexico as I please. But other people, like in, in my neighborhood in San Miguel, a lot of the, the kids that I grew up with, they came to the U.S. to find work and to, to work in restaurants and in construction and whatnot. And then living here in the United States, I've met a lot of people that have had that experience. So while this, the, the experience of Pancho Rabbit is not my own personal experience, it's definitely an issue that's important to me and that, uh, that is around me. That's awesome. And Javier, this, the, you know, what motivated you? Well, you know, a lot of it has to do with, you know, my culture, my, you know, his family. I mean, a, lo a lot of the work that I do deals with things that I experience or like uh, in Charro, like going back to we're talking about, uh, you know, having family on both sides of, of, the, of the border. Uh, as a, you know, in Charro Claus, I write, there's a section in the book where it starts that, you know, Vincent is spending Christmas Eve with his Uncle Pancho, who, li who lives in a farm near the U.S.-Mexico border. Uh, in the story, I never say 
who lives on what side, but it's implied that one lives in the Mexican side, one lives in the U.S. side. And it's that whole connection that, you know, uh, like you mentioned, uh, San Miguel de Allende, uh, my grandfather came from San Miguel de Allende. I have family in San Miguel de Allende that I've only seen like twice in my whole life that, that we've gone there. And, uh, you know, it's like my grandfather. He would talk, he would tell me stories of when he lived there growing up before he came over to the U.S. And it goes back to this whole idea that it's all connected. I mean, uh, you know, one of my uh, books, Juan and the Chupacabras, deals with kids that sneak out of their house to go to the cornfields behind the, their grandfather's old house to see if the Chupacabras is really there. Uh, as a kid, our cornfields were supposed to be haunted, said my grandfather. So me and my cousin Bobby would sneak out at night and uh, go see if they were really haunted. I mean, they really weren't. But, you know, as a kid, you wanted that kind of adventure, so. Well, I really love reading your books. And I, back to the Charro Claus, mm -hmm. uh, for those of you who haven't read it, I, I, I suggest it as an adult as well because it's super funny. There's something you wrote in there about the, um, his wagon is being led by burros, and then you write that there's, they're looking at flying burros in the sky. So. Oh, yeah. Uh, the wagon is pulled by Tando, Mando, Freddy, and Little Joe. <laughs> they're uh, Ch uh, Charro Claus's magical flying burro that, we're, that we have shiny, shiny capes and lucha libre masks. And, uh, you know, in, the, in the, the whole, the book, what I wanted to do with that book was First, it was like I said, it was a, it was a, a bedtime story for my son. Uh, when I first wrote the book, you know, my dad introduced me to the concept of a Mexican Santa Claus. I wanted to do the same thing for my little boy. So I wrote a story for him, put him in it. After I read it to him, I thought to myself, I kind of like it. I'm going to try to get it published. Uh, and the whole book, I'll be honest with you, Charro Claus and the Tejas Kid is a big I love you to my little boy. Uh, I made the characters. If you, if you get a chance to look at the book, the characters look like me and him. And I put my niece in there too. Because, you know, uh, you know he, she's who my little boy loves to play with when family gets together. They're close in age. And right now he loves it. He's nine. He loves telling his friends that he is the Tejas kid. Of course, he'll get to junior high and he'll be embarrassed to death about it. But, uh, but then again, it's junior high. You can't take nothing personal. Uh, but eventually, when they get older, he'll appreciate it again. And, you know, and I tell people, they ask me, what's the best part of writing a book? Best part of writing a book, guys, is that uh, it'll outlive you. Your story will continue to be told. I mean, in 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, an author might be gone, but his or her book is still going to be in the shelf somewhere. Some kid's going to pick it up. They're going to read it. And hopefully what you did will inspire them to, to do the same because anybody can write a book. The reason we can is because todos tenemos cuentos. We all have stories, but the hardest part is just putting it down on paper and sharing it. That's the hardest part. Absolutely, absolutely. I, I agree. And, and looking at both of your books, uh, just admiring all the, the way that you put the, the story together and things. And, and as an artist, looking back into it, I was reading Duncan's uh, Diego Rivera and his world and ours. Can you please explain that to the audience for us? Because it's super cool. Sure. Uh, there's probably a copy, a display copy of it somewhere. Um, but yeah, it's a book about, uh, about the, the muralist, the famous Mexican muralist. 
and um, and so the story tries to um, the first part of the story is a very simple biography of him, but then the book tries to imagine what he would paint nowadays and compares it to to things that he painted, and um, and so and and with Diego Rivera it was sort of similar to what I was talking about. Like I saw a lot of images by him in, in books and in a poster at my aunt's house and different things when I was a kid, but I never really kind of appreciate it. And it was later um, when I was asked to do a small illustration for a, for a textbook about Mexican history that I began looking at a lot of his at a lot of his murals to to see the way people dressed and and he had a lot of uh, history in his images. Um, and so that was just uh, just looking at it. That idea kind of came in my head like. You know, he painted all these epic things like the, the independence and the revolution and the industrial revolution. Um, what would he paint nowadays? And I was like, ah, that would be a good, um, a good, that could make a good book. And so then I, I, uh, I started working on it and, um, and I tried sort of looking at his images and kind of drawing them, making sort of a, a homage to him in my own version, drawing him in my own style, but referring back to to some of his um, some of his murals. You've been listening to pictures and words from the 2014 Festival of Books. Our guests today were award-winning authors Duncan Tanatu and Javier Garza. The panel was moderated by local artist Mel Melo Dominguez. This panel was hosted by Pima County Public Library's Nuestras Raices Tent at the 2014 Tucson Festival of Books. Nuestras Raices' mission is celebrating Mexican-American authors, arts, and culture. This has been part one of a two-part series. Thank you for listening to 30 Minutes on 91.3 KXCI Tucson. I'm Amanda Shager.